say hi, I'm John. And I'm Joe. Welcome to our podcast, Extraordinariness. Where we explore the motivations behind ordinary people's extraordinary accomplishments. So do you want to start with um, introducing yourself? Well, I don't need to introduce myself because we've been doing a podcast for months, so everyone's going to know who I am. Everyone knows who you are. Yeah. But tell us what you've done. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I'm John Harmon, and uh, I have, three weeks ago, just come back from completing Marathon de Sable. Amazing. So what I want to know, John, is tell us how the idea came about. Like, why did you decide to do this particular event, and what was the sort of the catalyst into making that decision? So it's always been on my radar. In fact, ever since uh, school, we had a, we both went to the same school and we had a teacher and I remember him telling me about it, which was uh, Mr. Fox, who was in charge of the, the CCF. And I remember him telling me about it probably age 15. And so it's always been something that's just sort of totted around in the back of my memory. Um, and then, uh, so in March last year, that would be March 2021, uh, I had a recurrence of an injury that I'd had um, 12 years prior that meant that I was in hospital having a surgery. And the surgery is abdominal surgery. It's called a laparotomy, which is about a eight-inch incision right up the centre of your abdomen. And it leaves you feeling pretty sorry for yourself, basically. You sort of have to start walking again and to begin with you can walk about 10 meters and then you gradually build up so it's feeling very unfit for someone who's used to i was going to say for someone like you and having known you for so long that would that would not go down well yeah so uh so yeah so i thought i needed a bit of a challenge and it was a kind of a perfect storm really in that something had happened at work that meant i had a little bit more time than usual um and this was you know all covid wise mm-hmm. so there's there's the, the time and then also a bunch of holidays that we'd had had been cancelled again because of COVID. And Marathon de Sable is not a cheap event. And so <laughs> having had some holidays cancelled, it kind of meant that there was some... some. So all of a sudden, this perfect storm kind of came around. And my wife said, um, I don't know if she was half joking, but she said, oh, if you need a challenge, you should do Marathon de Sable. So I went on the internet and paid for the deposit there and then thinking, I'll do this before she changes her mind. <laughs> I was going to say, you've got permission now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that was the start of the road so at this point i couldn't walk for half an hour let alone run so how many months out from the event were you at this point of saying yes that was about uh 12 months so a year to bring yourself back to full fighting fitness and then beyond to be able to then yeah yeah so i I gave myself uh three months to to recover to you know do the the physio basically Mm -hmm. and then um then three months to sort of work my basic fitness back up, which actually comes back really quickly. And then six months to really drill down on the, the training for it. So not everyone's going to know what the Marathon de Sable is. So describe the event. What is it? Where is it? Where so it? it is a uh, pretty famous event that takes part in, uh, takes place, sorry, in uh, south west, southeastern Morocco in the Sahara Desert. It's 250 kilometres spread over uh, five days. You're actually out in the desert for longer than that. You're out in the desert for about nine days, um, but five running days. And this, the stages are traditionally broken down into um, something like 35 kilometres, 38 kilometres, then another 30 kilometres, and then a long day, which is usually somewhere between 80 and 90 kilometres. If you finish that day, you get a rest day the next day, and then the last day is a marathon, so 42 kilometers in the desert it's a self-sufficient race so you have to carry everything that you need 
for the whole week, with the exception of a tent, which is provided for you. You get a um, uh, a goat's hair Berber tent, which is like a blanket held up by sticks. Um, <laughs> Sounds and, luxurious. Yeah, very luxurious. And oh, you do get a rug. You sleep on a rug as well. Um, and you get water given to you at checkpoints. But apart from that, everything you need, toilet roll, food, snacks, clothes, you have to carry on your back. Wow. So... What were the temperatures and how much did they vary from sort of start kicking off in the morning to when you were putting your head down at night? Well, that was actually the problem this year was nighttime. Um, I think it, the event was quite early this year. So like high heats wasn't the problem. It was probably, I think the, the still air temperature, you know, measured inside a tent out of the sun was about 30 degrees, but it certainly felt more like 35, 36 at the height of the day when you're running. But actually it's so dry that, you don't, you know, when you get off a plane somewhere hot and sticky, mm. you instantly feel hot and sticky. It's so dry that you don't really, you sweat, but you don't notice it on your skin because it Which evaporates. Just because it dries straight. It just evaporates straight away. That's crazy. Um, but at night it was really cold, so I think it probably went down to two or three degrees. Wow. Um, so that was probably one of the bigger challenges, and then the wind this year was pretty windy as well. Okay, so talk me through you know, arriving, setting off day one. Were you nervous? Did you um, know you had it? Was there any doubts? So actually, I, and everyone I spoke to shared this, this, the single biggest fear that we all had was the COVID test 24 hours before going. <laughs> because if you failed the COVID test, you obviously couldn't go. And then all that and training that you And it was at a time where it was pretty rife, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd been, uh, I'd been uh, doing my heat acclimation training in the sauna uh, at the local uh, gym and any time anyone else walked in, I'd been sort of giving them the eyes, you know, <laughs> get out of the sauna, you give me COVID. Oh. Um, yeah, so that was, that was probably the biggest fear. But uh, you get a charter flight for well, all the British contingent. There are about 360 British athletes. It's about 1,100 athletes competing. Oh, so it's pretty global then. It's Everyone. a big event. A lot of Americans, Italians, French. The oldest competitor was an Italian man who was 85. And did he complete? He did, yeah. That's <laughs> amazing. But yeah, so you get a chance to fly in, you then get a bus journey down and uh, you arrive into the camp and you have a couple of nights uh, in the desert because you have a day where they do technical checks. They check all your equipment, your bags, okay. making sure you have the the minimum amount of food that you've got to take with you. And is, would this level um, of sort of, you know, could that qualify you for being disqualified? If they... uh, I think worst case, you could be disqualified. Otherwise, you can get time penalties. So like maybe a four oh. hour time penalty if you don't have your compass or... Oh, really? Uh, I think this year there were th three people who... One of the other requirements is that you turn up with an ECG taken in the last month. And then that's read by a doctor. Okay. And if they see something they don't like, they go to the, the chief cardiologist. And I think three people had something picked up on their ECG that meant that they weren't allowed to compete. Really? Yeah. But I mean, it, it could have been life saving for them. So they were they were told to go home and. Well, yeah. But yeah, again, that, I think I think for for most people that's obviously not a worry at that stage. Um, but yeah, that so you you could get to that point and then not even start. Okay, yeah. that would be pretty heart wrenching. Yeah, um, the rest of that day sort of dragged out a little bit, and three of my tent mates who were uh, ex Royal Engineers decided that they'd go for a hike. <laughs> the day yeah. before yeah 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 yeah. and it was a big hike and I remember them turning around and they said uh, guys we're going to walk up to the top of that hill over there you know do you want to come and I remember looking at them thinking you'd, like, surely he's joking anyway they set off about three hours later they came back and one of them had uh, you wear sand gaiters in the desert which are like uh, parachute silk that's velcroed onto the top of your shoes so make... sand doesn't go in your, so shoes. Sand doesn't go yeah. your shoes and uh, on this hike the day before the event even started he'd managed to rip no one of the... yeah, yeah big, big tear fortunately we had a, a 
a chap in our tent who was just an absolute legend who immediately whisked out a sewing kit. Oh, really? Yeah, a patch of parachute silk and some super glue and proceeded <laughs> to, uh, to fix them for him. So how many to a tent? Uh, it says eight people in a tent. Um, some people turn up knowing each other. Uh, I knew nobody... You know, I turned up in first point. And was point. it the same eight people to each tent each night? Yeah, so you, you, that, those are your tent mates, and they kind of become your family while you're there, yeah. you know, and you sort of, you're eating together, you're doing everything together, basically. So tell us about, so can you remember the names? Of all yeah, of course I can, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, we had Rory, Dougie, Barry. They were the ex-Royal Engineers. They are in a team. I like team. that. They sound like yeah. they should be in a cartoon. They, they should be in a cartoon, <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolute gentleman to a, to a piece. And then there were uh, three other friends. So we had Chris, Ross and Dom, and then Pete, who also knew the the the, the sappers, as they were called, the, the Royal Engineers, who was an Australian chap, who definitely carried the most amount of food. Oh, really? Yeah. So Pete, Pete the Rations became his nickname. <laughs> Pete had more food than anyone had ever seen. Um, but they were absolute just legends. And, you know, everyone helps, everyone gets through it, and you sort of work as a team. They, they've truly become a real family as the week goes have on. Have you seen them since you've been back? Haven't yet. I know there's a walk planned, and we're planning to have a curry. I think we put that in the diary straight away. Oh, nice. So, yeah, I'll hopefully stay in touch with them. I know that there's currently talk about trying to row the Atlantic or something, but having slept in a tent with two of them who are weapons-grade snorers for a week, <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, I'm not sure about sharing a boat. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And are they all from round here? Uh, all across the country, yeah. Okay. yeah. All, all, um, all from England and uh, all English speaking. That tends to be how they put the tents together, make okay. sure everyone speaks the same language. That's pretty special. Yeah. So you pass the COVID test, all your kit was signed off, ready for action. Yeah. So uh, you have your final night in the desert, and then you, we woke up to just a glorious sunrise, like you wouldn't believe. So you kind of wake up about, I don't know six o'clock in the morning sunrise is about half six and as you're waking up the the berbers are already taking the tents down while you're still in them okay because they need to pack them all up and they need to get them to the next checkpoint to rebuild the bivouac and they all in vehicles to do this yeah yeah they've got but obviously they've got to put them all back up so you're sort of still in your tent as the tent comes down packing all of your kit away um and you have breakfast sort yourself out and then head out to the start line and the start line's quite special there's sort of a fairly long talk from Patrick Bauer who started the event who's a Frenchman but everything he says is then translated into English so it takes quite a long time okay. <laughs> to get everywhere and then traditionally the race is started with uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell okay. <laughs> um, which is probably quite appropriate and I say the the organization of the event is amazing and that shows by the fact that the most poorly orchestrated part of the whole thing was the timing of the helicopter and ACDC's Highway of Hell with the start. Oh, really? Yeah, so I, think, I, think, I think they wanted the chorus to go at the same time as the start, as the same time as the helicopter circled overhead, but it didn't work out. Oh, okay. We ended up standing there for one and a half renditions of Highway to Hell. <laughs> but if that's the biggest complaint, you know. But it's amazing, you know, the, the real, real energy, everyone's sort of buzzing to get going, no one really knows what, what to expect. So I'm just trying to visualise this. I I've, I've, I don't know anything about the event. Is it well marked? Can you kind of clearly see where you're meant to be going? Or is it kind of, is there a sense of you having to navigate your way through to the next sort of... So stage? when we arrived in Morocco and you're on the bus, you're given what's called the roadbook, which um, has got like hand-drawn maps of the route. Okay. Uh, and like there are bearings, you know, so you can use your compass, but I mean, everyone's compass is tucked deep inside their bag. And the, <laughs> the, the course is marked with... Um, like a, I think a biodegradable pink spray paint on rocks and rocks will be piled up. And so you can generally see where you're going. Unless, to be honest with you, unless you're at the very front, yeah. you can nearly always see someone in front of you. Okay. 
Yeah. And so, does everyone go in one big wave or how so do they... ap- apart from two of the days, everyone sets off together. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so uh, I set off very, very slowly. I mean, I was running. You don't have to run it. Lots of people walk the entire thing and nobody runs it all. I think everyone walks some of it. I probably yeah. walked about 20% of it, you know, in okay. sort of really soft sand or up really steep hills. Um, but I went off very slow and it's just, it's fantastic. You're walking along, just chatting to people. Everyone's got their name written on their, yeah. their chest. So everyone's chatting to everyone. And the, the, the landscapes, unless you've been to the deserts before, it's just something completely new. So all of your senses are alive because you've never been there before. Yeah, and you're experiencing it all for yeah. the first time. So describe what you're, what you're looking at when you first set off. So that's one of the things that's quite special about it is each day had a really different feel to the terrain. So I'm guessing it's done like that on purpose. So we had um, small sand dunes, big sand dunes, dried out uh, lake beds. We had just sort of long, stony, uh, flat plateaus. We had hills. So the first day set off through a, a sort of a canyon with kind of a shale floor. So you're sort of running on stones. I mean, mm-hmm. you're mostly running on stones the whole way. Okay. Um, so sort of, you know, good cushioned footwear is essential um but yeah the 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 scenery just changes each day and you'll know that from your road book that maybe you've got seven kilometers of a flat plateau and then you're going to turn left onto the sand dunes or something like that and then you walk through sand dunes um so you can kind of tell what's coming and follow the route and at any point did you question your ability to finish no i absolutely loved every single minute of it and Day two was really, really, really hard and I had a really high dropout around day two. Day two was about 38 kilometres and I don't think anyone was particularly fearful of the distance, but it involved uh, quite a lot of sand, sand dunes. It had a huge climb up a Jebel called Jebel El Otfal and it was a really long climb up kind of a, uh, uh, a stony escarpment to get to the top and then on the way down you were running down a 20% soft sand which is actually great fun oh really yeah it sounds scary uh yeah i went quite slow and i lost my hat and my hat was blown up the hill and there's no way i could have gone and got it (laughs) you couldn't you couldn't climb it we we did climb it the next day but we climbed it from the side with the aid of ropes okay fortunately another another runner sort of did a detour and picked my hat up for me oh no but i but that that so that was tough but i stood at the top and i looked back at where i'd been and i was going quite quick and this, the wind had been getting stronger and stronger all day. It had been a really strong wind in your face the whole day. And it started picking up sand. Oh, no. And a sandstorm had blown up. And in the briefing, they said, you know, if you get caught in a sandstorm, just, uh, like, stay where you are okay. so that you don't get lost. Uh, don't worry, sandstorms last two hours. Uh, 20 minutes, sorry. That's it. This shouldn't last 20 minutes to half an hour. Well, this sandstorm lasted about four hours. Oh, no. So did that make you have to... So, so, no, they, so everyone kept on going because you could still just about see the next marker. I don't understand we didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Siri. I can explain it for Siri. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and for me, the sandstorm was really only bad on the last sort of five kilometres into the, the, the bivouac. So I ran into the bivouac and as I was running in, my shoulders had gone into sort of spasm, I think, because I'd been using uh, poles a lot more than I'd ever used yeah. in training, probably because of the wind. And as I got into the camp, you arrive, you cross the finish line, you're given a really lovely uh, Moroccan sweet tea, sweet, you know, mint tea. And then I thought, this is great, right? I'm going to go sit down in the tent. I'm going to uh, sort my shoulders out, have a stretch, have some ibuprofen, have a recovery shake. And then it's tradition for the first person back to uh, roll up the rug before everyone gets there and remove all the stones from underneath the rug. Um, I got back to my tent and it was completely flat and destroyed. 
oh, as were ninety five percent of the the tents in the bivouac. It was like I couldn't pick it up by myself, even if I even if my shoulders hadn't been in so much pain. Because it's just under so much sand at this point. It, it's heavy. Uh, yeah. It's heavy rug. It's under so much sand, and and it was ripped. So uh, there were some other competitors who just who'd gotten a bit before me, and I went and sat in their tent and I sat down, and within about three or four minutes, you're just covered in really? a, a layer of sand. It's everywhere. It's in your ears. It's up your nose. It's in your hair. This is making me feel quite anxious because I can't deal with sand. I find it really stressful. Uh, and yes, knowing that you, yeah. there's not a shower that you could just pop no, into. No, I mean, I was dirtier than I've ever been. Everyone was. And I tried to wash. You know, you have, if you're going to wash, you need to wash with your ration water, of water. Yeah, so that's a gamble, isn't it? You kind of, how much you want to sacrifice. Yeah, so, I mean, I saved about half a bottle of water to wash my body and clothes. Okay. And, yeah, I mean, it was, you didn't have to do it, but you're sort of doing it for your own. Yeah well-being um and then that night trying to cook you know you're trying to not like it's it's just you're trying not to get sand in your food but forget it you can't it's oh, everywhere the sand is everywhere so you sort of you know so you're carrying like a little stove um so i carried a tiny stove it was like really tiny just big enough to put a titanium One cup pot. on the top okay and then you have these little like uh hexamine fuel tablet a lot of people don't take they tell they're gonna have cold food for me the morale boost was yeah. worth the weight i reckon to to carry food it cost me 250 grams of weight Okay. You know, for the fuel and for the stove. And the and worth it? A hundred percent. Okay. I had, co- I had a coffee in the morning and a breakfast, hot breakfast. So and what were you eating? I was eating freeze-dried foods from a company called Expedition Foods. I thought they were really nice. Okay. Yeah. I might start taking them, you know, to work for... with me. Well, I've just got <laughs> loads of this Huel stuff, which yeah. is kind of similar. No, not good? No, not for me. I mean, yeah. Not a fan of the taste. Is it? Okay. I mean, it's all vegan. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I, I probably had chili con carne three nights of the week. Okay. Freeze-dried chili, it was really good. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So, at any point, did you feel hungry? Um, so, one of the things that everyone says to you is, there's a minimum calorie requirement. You have to have a minimum of 2,000 calories a day, which isn't a lot. No, considering it's a standard for just normal life, isn't it? Uh, so, a man is probably about is two, two and a half, maybe. Yeah. And then, you know, I reckon on, the, on a normal, one of the normal days, I'm burning maybe 6,000 calories. Wow. moving on top and then you got your two that so i took two and a half thousand calories a day so i took a bit extra than than the minimum requirement but you're still running a major deficit absolutely um but i wasn't no i didn't feel hungry and everyone says you don't tend to feel hungry i don't know if it's the heat or just the long distances okay but i feel like i had enough food um i probably had a little bit a little bit excess food actually at the end of it the long day which was 86.4 kilometers i think Okay. Um, so I had a meal on that one. I had like some. I actually had a vegan meal for that one because I thought it would be the only one that would taste all right without cooking it. Okay. Um, as, in, as, funny, as in halfway through the distance. Or, yeah. Or... So actually, I'd gotten to forty-six k quite quickly. The long day had been really strange. Everyone was definitely quite fearful of the long day because yeah. for most, but I hadn't run that far in uh, in my training. I'd done a sixty k run. Okay. Um, but yeah, about halfway through the day, I started sort of, or maybe more than that, maybe about forty-six k. I started going. I'm, like, I'm nearly there. Like I've almost done. We're nearly there now. Okay. And I had this whole internal conversation. Where I was like, I don't even need to cook my food. I might just wait till I get just to camp. Just keep going. Because I'm nearly there. <laughs> and then it, I sort of had to have a word with myself. You know, you're not nearly there, John. There's 30 kilometres to go <laughs> of desert and sand dunes and hills. So I, I did. I put my put the food in my bag, and actually, I had a point where I was starting to crash. Had the food. 20 minutes later, I felt great again. And then so I, you knew I you needed to refuel. Yeah, yeah. And I put in the fastest 20k of the whole event then at the end of that day in the really? dark yeah and i finished the long day in 12 and a half hours wow um, and how long were you sort of running most days 
Uh, so it's between four and five for the other days. Okay. Yeah. Now, that long day, you have a time limit of 35 hours. And actually, one of the, one of the best moments was on that rest day, rest day for most of us, or no, it's actually not a rest day for most of us, rest day for those of us who'd finished within, you know, like 14 hours. Mm-hmm. I think the quickest, the next people back in my tent came back in about three in the morning, so they did really well because they were walking the whole way, so they must be walking fast. Okay. And then the next day, uh, the organisers start driving around saying, guys, you need to go to the finish line. And the whole bivouac went out to the finish line to watch the last competitors come in. I think they came in about... Four, three or four o'clock the following day. So they've been out on so the course were, since 7.30. So a good 20-odd hours. Of- 30, 30-odd 30 hours, 30 odd hours. Anyway, the guy who finished last, uh, he did so barefoot. Oh. The whole event barefoot. Was this part of his training or is this, is this an extra challenge it's he just, wanted to... just something he does, apparently. Okay. But yeah, so the whole bivouac came out. It was quite emotional as well. And, you know, everyone's sort of cheering this guy in. Oh, nice. He, uh, so there's a real sense in. of sort of team spirit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, very, very impressive. I talked a lot to my tentmates about it. All, all of them had set out to walk the uh, walk the event. And, you know, they'd come back, oh, John, like, amazing what you did finish that time. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not working harder you know, if you're running, I think you're not necessarily actually working that hard. You know, you limit your heart rate, how fast you go. I think it's much harder to be out there for so much longer, to be on your feet for so much longer. I was thinking because it is just the endurance of being on your yeah. feet for that length yeah, of time. Yeah. So I'm saying, like, having the bag on your shoulders of... for that long, yeah. you know, being on your feet for that long. So I'm, I'm not convinced that it's harder to run it. I personally think... That if you can train it. to run, you know, and I'm, when I say running it, it's very slow. It's like a shuffle. Okay. Like six, six and a half minute kilometers or six fifteen per kilometer while you're running. But you're still getting yourself to that point where you can put your feet up quicker. Much quicker. Right. Much, much so quicker. So effectively, yeah. it's a more efficient way to do the event. Yeah, I think so. I think I think much easier. You don't have the bag on your shoulders. So my feet were great. I had two tiny blisters at the end of the whole week. Oh really? Um, on my toes, and I, that was mostly due to. The, the day three, which was lots of sort of climbing on shale and lots of rocks, and it was, my, you know, your feet kind of turning oh, in yeah, your shoes. Yeah, twisting. Yeah, yeah. But so I looked after, you know, I mean, I, I think a big key to it is preparation. Um, so I'd done a lot of research and prepared and looked after my feet, and I had, you know, socks and Do you know what, because even speaking to you before you went, it would be, I think it'd be really interesting to talk a little bit about the prep, because people would just assume that, the main part of it would be the training, right? Getting the miles in and being able to get your body to a stage where you can cover the distance. But when you're talking about weighing your rucksack and the food and the water, talk us through a little bit about how you kind of get to that point. Yeah, so you're right, actually. Training-wise, I recognise I'm getting older, so I'm 39. Very young, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, you know, like, you can't do what you're doing when you're in your 20s. So I, I only did three runs a week. I wouldn't do more than that. And that was so that I could try not to get injured. And that worked out. Okay. Um, but yeah, there was lots of preparation of buying kit. And you get quite obsessive about, you know, shaving off a gram here or two grams there. And I'd read a few um, blogs written by certainly well-meaning uh, athletes. Uh, a couple of them were ladies who are elite level athletes. Okay. Right? And so their blogs had really gone into depth about how, you know, the minimum weight of your rack sack is, I think it's uh, six kilos or six and a half kilos. I don't remember. But, you know, they're really driving home. Don't be a gram over the minimum weight. You know, you don't want to carry it. And you get absolutely obsessive over this. And I sort of was really struggling and then came to the realisation that, well, I'm not a five foot ten woman. Yeah. 
I'm a six foot two man. I'm also allergic to down. So I can't have a down sleeping bag or a down jacket. So that's like 300 grams already, 400 grams. Okay. You know, I need more food because I'm a man. Yeah. And so I kind of had this realization. And actually when I did that, when I said, you know what, it's okay. Your bag you can be heavier. That you as long as you can get yeah. into a tiny five. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you can carry it, then that's fine. And so my bag ended up weighing on day one without water, eight point one kilos. Wow. And do you know what? That that was fine. That felt absolutely fine. And then, what do you just top up your water each kind of? Yeah, so each checkpoint up? you get between one and a half and three liters. Actually, water wasn't the problem for me this year. It it, it was hot, but I didn't really need all the water I was given. And then See, every checkpoint that doesn't seem a lot. So checkpoints are like roughly 10 kilometres apart. So like imagine drinking a litre and a half of water every 10k. Oh, every 10k. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. yeah. So, so how many litres do you think you took it on each day? Uh, oh, no, I, I used all of my allowance of water. Mm-hmm. I probably used half a bottle to wash clothes and, you know, cooking and drinking. I just think that... No, I definitely threw some out and I definitely gave some to other people. Okay. Yeah, so definitely didn't need it all. And they give you salt tablets. And so if you, as long as you get into a routine of taking these salt tablets, it's like two... Two tablets every litre and a half. Do you I, add them to your water? You just like they look- have them like aspirin. Oh, okay. So check, I, my checkpoint routine, I'd come into a checkpoint. I wouldn't stop. I don't think I stopped for longer than 90 seconds in a checkpoint. Oh, wow. So, that so is walk into a checkpoint, grab your bottle, top up your bottles, uh, pour the rest over your head yeah. on your clothes to cool down and then start walking. And then I would start walking straight away. I would take my salt tablets, food if you need it, and then either carry on walking if it's soft sand or, or run. Okay. Lots of people, you know, I, I'd have lots of people run past me and then I'd go past them in the checkpoint and I wouldn't see them again. So I don't know if people are stopping for a long time. Right. But for me, that idea of... So I had a, a motto. It's a motto from an ultra runner called Dean Carnazes, which was uh, basically uh, run if you can, walk if you have to, and uh, crawl if you must, but don't stop. Okay, that's yeah. good. I didn't have to do any crawling. Excellent. Yeah. Did and you so, see anyone do any crawling? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. But so uh, that was something that was quite interesting. So stepping away slightly from the, 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 the where and when of the experience, I think we talked to, I'm trying to think who we talked to. I can't remember one of our guests, but one of the things that I found happened to me was this, this mantra that I had, walk if run if you can. Yeah. Um, you know how you get that little devil on your shoulder, right? The one yeah. saying stop. Just yeah. stop. Just walk. Just, just you know, this hurts. Just my, stop. Yeah, my, my little devil tells me to walk all Yeah, time. well, so do yeah, my little <laughs> But I've managed to get him on my side because oh. instead of that, he was saying, you know, so on the long day especially, when I would be walking perhaps on actually flat, hard terrain, he'd go, could you run? Okay. And then I'd go, yeah, yeah, I can. And then I'd start running again. And so I kind of had this like little devil on my shoulder. He was actually pushing me on to, to run cool. rather, rather than to walk. You know? And then I'd come to a little hill and my little devil, could you run? I'd go, no, I can't run. It's a okay. hill and I'm tired. But then I'd get to the top and the little devil would say, could you run? Could you run? So go, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can. He was just keeping you going, but yeah, not yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, it was like keep, keeping me on my toes. So it was, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I've been, been out in the desert by probably like eight hours now on, on the fourth day of running. So like, it's funny how your brain... Starts, takes you to these places that's it yeah and there was a point as well on the long day after about 45 kilometers and i put some music in for the first time a week just to listen to the music and a song came on it was not a sentimental song has no meaning to me and i just started thinking of my two boys and then i just completely whirled up Aww. like out of nowhere it wasn't i wasn't deeply missing them i'd only been away <laughs> for five days or something but yeah your brain goes to funny places and well and also you're having an experience that one you've dreamed of for decades yeah yeah to prepped for for a year yeah. particularly following 
surgery, there might have just been a moment of, oh my God, I made it, Well, I'm, I'm, so one of the reasons that I wanted to do it as well was uh, that I wanted to, I, I heard something on a podcast where they said that uh, nothing you say to your kids makes the blindest bit of difference to the way they behave or act. It's the, it's the behaviours that you model. Oh Basically, monkey see, monkey do, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought, well, I should do this, and I'm, I'm modelling these good behaviours, then, right? And you know, yeah, resilience good. and that sort of stuff. So, so maybe there was a realization of that. But then that also that was good because it meant that. And I remember Shasta said this when we interviewed her, and we came away saying that one of the things in the toolbox was uh, make it bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. So don't just make it about you. And so that was quite good. I, and I guess maybe that's why I had that feeling is that I wasn't just doing it for me. I was doing it to display these yeah, these behaviours. So you've got another sort of motive that's great and also what's really interesting is obviously we've been interviewing all these amazing extraordinary people in the run-up to this event how much do you think that you know the things in our toolbox influenced how you approached your extraordinary sort of challenge i think i've probably managed to take trying like i've done it i've done it consciously tried to take a little bit from everybody so i mentioned what what we took from shasta there and then uh, with um, Jonathan and the Transcontinental, he said, just make make what you're doing a habit, you know, normalise it. And I think certainly my rowing career helped with that. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's not unusual to go and do these huge amount of training. And I was doing a lot of training. I, you know, I was going for running, I was running five hours a day, six days, sorry, running five hour, five or six hours a day on a, on a Saturday would be normal. And I wasn't thinking that this was an unusual thing to do. Because it's just part of your. Because it's what you do. Yeah. And I think that's what Johnny was saying. You know, make it make it a habit. Just make it normal. Um, uh, and also, we had Andy Ibbett, who did actually tackle MDS. He did, and he, he was obviously an absolute hero because he was doing it. You know, from a, a really difficult starting point. And I think what he's what we took from him was this idea of one step at a time, mm-hmm. which perhaps ties into my sort of run if you can, walk if you have to, and. Uh, and what I also, you know, like the, you can't look at an 86 kilometre day and start counting down from 86 kilometres. No. Your brain really doesn't cope with that. So you just go checkpoint to checkpoint. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely something that, that um, you could take from it. And then I think, I think the change to Rob Castley, I remember he had, you know, like uh, experiences as a young man that made him want to get fit and sort of... Uh, I think that that definitely my schoolboy uh, time at, at our school at Gordon's with you know Mr. Fox yeah. was so instrumental in shaping my attitude to these sorts of things. Like it's never crossed my mind that this is something that I wouldn't be able to complete. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm just saying that I didn't. I didn't ever think because of the foundations that were in play from all the things that we used to do at school. Yeah, and also, you know, like, if, if I take away the one thing that you would take from, from that man in particular was that he just completely believed in each and every one of us and made you feel that as well. Yeah. So you take that enormous confidence, which is... Um, well, that's what, um, with Kat and, and Rachel, the, the two girls who cycled yeah, on, yeah. I, I remember that conversation, and it was very much kind of fueled by the other's belief in the other... As opposed to this kind of real sense of self. Yeah. And that does make a massive sort of... Well, it has a massive influence on how you, f- you feel. Because it isn't just that you don't want to let the other person down. It gives you the confidence to think, well, yeah, I can actually. Yeah, because they think I can. Exactly. And that, that was the same with the guys rowing around Britain as well, wasn't it? Because 
they had the military who were Nick like... Nick and Hamish. Yeah, yeah, Nick and Hamish. It was a case of... Uh, he said, um, if you take something to the army and they think it's doable, you know, they'll support you. And that's, you know, that gives you And that's you almost gives you permission. Well, it's, yeah, they yeah. think it's doable, so, yeah, so it I is. Can do it. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, I think, I mean, I'm obviously quite suited to this sort of event. I think yeah. as you get older, your endurance gets better. I'm also tall and skinny. <laughs> Yeah, I mean this helps, right? Stop showing off. Joe. I've got normal feet as well. I think the biggest thing that affect, that, that that influences whether or not you get really bad blisters is the shape of your feet. Really, I think just so. how it works in shoes. I think so. Looking at looking at the guy, look at. I mean, I saw some horrific blisters really? in the week, and uh, and there's a there's a they have this tent called Doc Trotters, and you go to the tent, and it's like a, uh, uh, it's like a um, assembly line of foot popping. And oh. foot strapping, you know. Did anyone get to the stage of injury where they weren't able to go on? I mean, absolutely. This year, despite being relatively cool temperatures, had a really had quite a high dropout rate. I think the dropout rate was about eleven percent of those who okay. were able to get there not having had COVID. I think sixty or so people had positive COVID tests at arrival, so couldn't couldn't even devastating. go. Yeah, devastating, absolutely. And then uh, yeah, about eleven percent dropout rate, which is quite high. I think most of those were on that day too, with the sandstorms and the really tough. And it just pushed day. people over the edge. And I think yeah, I think blisters. That, I mean, I did see some horrific blisters. A chap in my tent really struggled with. Um, I don't know if it was the heat and difficulty of day two combined with the fact that he couldn't really keep his food down. Um, salt tablets weren't going. You know, by the end of it, he looked absolutely really nice. shocking. And that is one of the inspiring things about the event is that you see someone walk in or stagger in, you know, to the tent right at the cutoff time. And you think there's no way that he's getting up tomorrow and, they you get know, up and, and they doing do it, it again or, or doing twice that distance. And then they get up and they do it and then they get up the next day and they do it again. And it's quite inspiring. But for those, because I, I'm getting the, the real sense that you had a great time. I loved it. So <laughs> for some people, obviously they're covering the same ground, they're, they're falling in your yeah. face, they're doing the same event, doesn't seem like it is as enjoyable. No, and the race has the tagline, the toughest foot race on earth, and it would be easy for me to go, oh, well, you know what, I had a great time, it's definitely not the toughest mm. foot race on earth. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's really unfair. It could easily have gone, gone a different way for me. It just, I think I was lucky... Yeah. I think I trained well, but I just think I was quite lucky. I didn't get any nasty blisters. I didn't get an, in, I didn't get an injury. I didn't twist my ankle. I didn't fall over. Okay. Um, and these are all tiny little yeah, and I eventualities think, that could have really taken I you think in so. another direction. Yeah, like I didn't get any chafing from a backpack. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it could easily have gone a different way. And I, I think it's those people who you can see are having a tough time and who just keep getting back up. And they do it. Yeah, and they do it. It's, uh, yeah, it's very, very inspiring. So out of the, the sort of eight guys in your tent, how many finished on the same sort of wavelength as you as that was amazing, I loved every second, and how many said that was horrible, but I've done it? Uh, I think maybe, I think, I think, do you know what? I think everyone probably finished thinking that was great. Okay. I, th- I think maybe a, yeah, a couple of the guys had a harder time of it with, with things like blisters or the yeah. heat exhaustion and stuff like that. Uh, everyone finished, which is very impressive, That's and everyone finished in good time. You know, they did really well. Um, so, you know, have you have you heard about the types of fun? So, type one fun, type two fun, all that sort of thing. Elaborate. Okay, so type one fun is fun when you're doing it. It's like jumping around a bouncy castle, right? Okay. Okay, fun. Type two fun is like uh, 
going for a run, I guess, for a lot of people. It's not fun while you're doing it, but afterwards... Yeah, you're always yeah. glad that you, you think back on it fondly. Exactly. I and those really were what I thought were just the types of fun. And uh, one of the gentlemen in the tent told us about type three fun, which is not fun while you're doing it or fun afterwards, but it's where the stories are made. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, and so I, I wonder if I wonder if for uh, for you know a couple of my tent mates who perhaps didn't enjoy the whole thing as much, they type three fun, and there's definitely some stories. And they're that just they thinking, yeah. yeah, I'm going to talk about this. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you said one of the biggest influences was kind of the you know doing it for your boys, and you know setting an example and being a sort of inspiration for them. Yeah. What's been their take on it since you've been home? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to begin with, uh, definitely very, very proud, you know. So okay. they, they actually went on holiday in Morocco at the same time. And, and do they, you know, do they understand how big of a deal this event is? I, I think so. Certainly, yeah, I think so. So they were tracking, you could track me, they were tracking my, my dot, which showed my current speed. So while they were on holiday, they were in the gym on a treadmill, Put in the treadmill to the speed that I was going. Yeah, yeah. so I think they were dead proud. Uh, I think that (laughs) that has worn off somewhat. And now (laughs) when I say to them, um, when I was in the desert, they sort of go, oh, my God, we know. We know you did it. We know. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Um, do you think either of them would tackle it when they? Uh, I I think think both of them, both of them will do something. And I'll, I'll be there with them. That's, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do that. Um, there's some, my, my big takeaway from the event, right? And lots of people, I, I've heard other people talk about it and they say, oh yeah, it was life-changing. I came out a different person. And I don't feel like I came out of a different person, but I definitely have a takeaway that I'll use in my life. And so there was a point where I was running along one of these flat plateaus and it's just mile upon mile Mm -hmm. of flatness of like tiny stones on the floor and sort of bigger rocks around and so you're running along and all you're seeing is this tiny area in front of your feet you're just looking you just want to twist your ankle right you know it's like and that's all you're looking and this would happen frequently throughout the event that every now and then you would look up and go wow or like oh my god because of what you were seeing of where you were the realization i'm in the middle of the sahara like i'm lucky enough i'm fit enough I'm healthy enough. I'm rich enough. Yeah, it's a privilege. That I, yeah, I can get the time of work. That I'm in. The, I'm in this place, and this is amazing. And then you look around, and just you'd see the cliffs over here, and and so the thing I've taken away from it is to look up. Oh, okay, I like that. Yeah. So I've had it at work where I'm tired, and then I've thought actually, and I've looked up, and I've got a really cool job. You know, I fly airplanes. I'm looking around like, yeah, this is really cool, and. Maybe you're with your kids in the garden, but you've got other things you need to be doing. And you're like, oh, God, when's this game over so I can go to the things I need to do? Mm. Well, look up, you know, yeah. and th- that's kind of the, the thing that I think I've taken away from it every now and then is even if you're thinking, oh, God, it's just so boring or I'm really tired. Just look up for a minute. So it's, it's almost just like take stock, step back. Yeah. Look at what it is. And I mean, I guess it, maybe, it's, it's great. maybe it's mindfulness that people are always talking about, but that's harder for me to... Well, yeah, I think when it comes to mindfulness, isn't it? There's so many different ways that you can interpret it in your own way. But if yeah. that is for you, the yeah. way that you find contentment in the moment, that's brilliant. I like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that, that? that's definitely my takeaway. Um, and, and how much are you applying it in your daily life? Uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm applying it quite a bit. At least yeah. at least once a week something's happening where I'm sort of reminding myself just to look up for a minute. Good for you. 
I highly recommend everyone goes and does this event, by the way. It was amazing. Like, I loved really? it so much. Yeah, yeah. So, because you've always been super fit, a runner. I am um, neither of those things. So, for, let's just say for someone like me who wanted to tackle it, would you recommend I try to get my running up to speed to get it over and done with quicker? Or do you think Ooh, just good crack on and make it a walk? Having just done the Isle of Wight this weekend, yeah, that was a walk that started off amazing, but the last few hours, and it, it, I don't think it's anything to do with distance. I, as you said before, I think my body gets to a point where when you're on your feet and you're carrying stuff and you're just plodding on for a yeah. number of hours, it, it was just tough. Um, so... I spent most of my time in a... Obviously, you end up meeting the people around you who are going the similar sort of pace as you. Um, so I didn't really spend much time with the, 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 walkers the hardcore the walkers. <laughs> yeah. um, so most of the people I was spending with were alternating, you know. So I uh, ended up chatting to a, a guy from London called Alex uh, or a girl from uh, who lived in Amsterdam called Olive. And, you know, we'd all be walking, running at various different times and we'd kind of leapfrog past each other. Yeah. I would recommend definitely running to the point where you can run for 3K, walk for a couple of K, run for 3K. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely... Run I think if you can. Run if you can, walk, walk if you need to. Walk if you to. need to, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I feel like you can apply that to almost everything. Yeah, yeah, that's very true, actually, isn't it? Yeah, anything Look you're doing... Up. Run if you can, walk if you need to. Yeah. And don't, you know, I wouldn't chastise myself for walking. I feel like my goals for the event were, in this order, finish mm-hmm. and then give a good account of myself. So I didn't set a target position, you know. And I, I definitely achieved the first one I finished. And I think I gave a good account of myself, although I still have a nagging thing that maybe I could have gone a bit quicker. Um, Do you think regardless to when you finish, you would put that on yourself I think a little so. bit yeah, because yeah. of your personality yeah I think so and I was dead happy where I finished the long day I finished 75th out of 906 starters oh, come on, so that's yeah incredible. and I never thought that would happen and it wasn't a goal you know I didn't set out and go oh yeah I want to finish top 100 you where know. did the um, 85 year old Italian finish I don't know he wasn't last I know that I mean that is yeah. a, that's inspiration he's done it about six times I think okay and so he, he's a regular and he stood up at the uh, he got called up to the podium as the oldest finisher and they said, uh, you know, what's your secret? And he said, just keep doing sport. Oh, great. That's so just secret. keep keep it. Yeah. Keep, keep active. Going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Are you proud of yourself? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very proud of myself. Um, I think that's all you want. When I think about what I want from my children, I just want them to feel proud of themselves. And they yeah. don't have to do a crazy marathon across no, no, the of desert not. to do that. Yeah. But, you know, just to have done something that makes you feel proud Something hard, right? And it doesn't have yeah. to. It's hard for you. It's it's relative. Yeah. Exactly, all relative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I the tr- for me, I found uh, a couple of days that in my training was much harder than the event itself, and that's because the event has the people, the place. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and you're there. You're doing yeah. it. You've kind of you've got all yeah. that hurdle. The training's kind of. Like... Whereas setting off on a, I did a sixty k run in training, and setting off on that, that's like a, you're by yourself. Yeah, it was a long old slog. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I found the training hard. So I'm probably, if I look back at it, I'm actually more proud of how I prepared. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's that the thing that I'm proud of myself. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 you know, I wrote a training plan and I stuck to it. And um, Where know. did you find the discipline to keep? Because it's so easy to slack off with training. 
you know, you're busy, you're a pilot, yeah, yeah, you've got yeah. a wife, you've got kids. Yeah, uh, I have a very understanding wife who recognised that you can't go and do something like this without having done the training. Yeah. So that helped. Um, I think discipline is really important in training. So make like what I did. One of the, here's a great tip, and I read this off of I think I saw a post by Pete Reed, who is a, a, a Olympic rower. Mm-hmm. who actually suffered a spinal stroke. So he's been hugely inspirational in his rehab and he tr- has been treating his rehab like an Olympic rower treats training plan. And one of the things he does, which I did, was I wrote my training plan out on paper and I put it up on the fridge. Okay. And if you're not going to do a session, you just have to write down why. Okay, I like that. Yeah. On the schedule or just in general? Just... No, no, it's, yeah, on, on the schedule. So leave a bit of space. Okay. So uh, I had a few days where I had a, a session you know, that I couldn't do and I would write on it. And if you're writing... Like I, try, I set off to do a half marathon on a treadmill. I got to 3K and I couldn't do it. I was exhausted. Okay. I wrote down... Too tired. Yeah, too tired. I'm exhausted. And that's fine, right? Because you need to listen to your body. Yeah, and you're giving yourself permission. Yep. If you're writing on there, can't be asked. <laughs> going to the pub. Yeah, you're probably not going to write that. And I think that keeps you honest. Okay. You know, And you, it doesn't have to be for anyone well, else. It's holding yourself accountable, isn't it? That's really yeah. important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't have to be for anyone else. It can just be for you. Yeah, I like that. So that's one thing. For me, actually, the thing that I'm probably more impressed with, I am not an organised person. You are? <laughs> no, 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 no. My wife will attest to the fact that if something needs organising, it's probably better that she does it okay. um, than me. I'm to not fair, super organised. I would organized. like to organise my life. Too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I am very much uh, motivated by deadlines, I'd say, usually. Okay. Um, and I was super impressed with the fact that I was organised. And I think I had to be because no one else is going to do it for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, sort of and was it nice to take ownership of something? Because, you know, as as any family dynamic, you know, your wife will take charge of this sort mm. of pocket of your life. And this was just, you know, this was yours to own, mm. to to organise, to kind of train for. Was it kind of, in a way, a nice little I project? found it quite stressful, actually, like organising oh, the food and kit. And like I say, going through that, that thing of reading you know, your bag must weigh this and then trying to give yourself permission that that's rubbish. I don't need to do that for me. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, it, I certainly think that the time spent was well spent. I had all the kit that I needed. I had all the food that I needed. The kit worked well. I mean, there were guys in my tent whose bags had, uh, it's no, through no fault of their own, um, but their bags on by day two had started ripping. How? Unfortunately, Rory with the sewing needle and so, silk and superglue was there to fix everything for everybody. Rory saves the day. So Rory's going to come on every future expedition with me with Just his, with his, uh, his sewing, sewing kit. Sewing kit. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to tell you something else. So on the rest day, uh, the rest day you get given a can of Coke, which is the first chilled drink you have in the whole thing. That's the, the only time they give you done. anything. So the three sappers, the ex-Royal Engineers, yeah. had carried with them a small bottle of rum... And a bottle of red wine. The whole way round? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so on the rest day, and I'd I'd taken with me a packet of pork scratchings, which had been earmarked to be my treat on the long day, um, because you crave salt and fat, because fat's your major fuel fuel source. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to save this for the rest. And then on the rest day, we had our Coca-Colas with uh, some rum in it. So they shared the rum around, which was lovely of them. You know, they brought it for the three of them, but they shared it around the tent. And then I shared around my pork scratchings. So we had like a little mini British pub. Yeah. With, uh, some of the so guys had the red wine. you did five days in a row, a rest day, then the sixth day was so, a uh, Sorry, four days. Yeah. And then the fifth day, if you finish the fourth day, is in a time. rest day. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and then the sixth day is the marathon day. And then actually you do walk on the seventh day. You do eight kilometres, but it's a charity stage. 
and it's not timed. Okay, right. Yeah, so I walked that with my with my tent and chatted. And, right, okay. Yeah. And it's in so beautiful... So there was essentially gym. a day where you just are there to chill out? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. In the middle of the desert? Yeah, through sand dunes. The highest yeah. sand dunes in Morocco. Wowzers. Yeah, which is very beautiful. But actually, by that stage, most people are ready to go to the hotel. Um, you think that when you get to the hotel, you just, I'm just going to have a cold beer. But actually, everyone just wants a shower. Oh, I just want and, a shower. And uh, fresh fruit and veg. Yeah, because yeah. your body's probably craving that sort yeah, of yeah. food. Yeah, so we all piled into the buffet and just bypassed the meat and just went straight for you know, beans, pulses, lettuce, tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. That's how I feel like after Glastonbury, <laughs> which I still consider an insurance event. Um, so, John, as you well know, we ask everyone about the pit and the peaks of the highest moment of the whole event and the lowest moment. Have you got those? Okay, this is really, really, really difficult because I genuinely loved every minute of it. Um, I'd say the lowest moment is probably arriving at the tent on that, that sandstorm to Day just two. a destroyed tent. And I, it wasn't also because I couldn't get in the tent. It was also because I didn't want to let my tent mates down with the sort of having the tent ready and getting yeah. all the stones up. And I mean, I let them down horribly. I had to wait until the three engineers got back. <laughs> and, then, and then I had the colonel directing us, you know, and how we're going to rebuild this tent. I did, I did get, I got it partly back up. I got the, the Berbers to come help me, but uh, that was probably the, the pit. And if not that, it was night times. It was very hard to sleep. I didn't feel tired during the day at any point, but I definitely didn't sleep much. Okay. Um, peak. I think the peak was uh, sunset on the long day, you know, running along with the sunset in the desert, knowing that I'd absolutely nailed it. Like, I really didn't think I'd go that fast. I didn't, probably had, you know, an hour and a half to go. I was feeling great and going really fast. And just had one of those moments where you're running and you just feel... You've got the like, euphoric kind of Yeah, yeah. Runners high, maybe they yeah, call it, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, that was definitely um, definitely a peak. Finishing was nice, but actually finishing is a little bit bittersweet because it's this amazing end. experience is, is, you know, finished. God, okay. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you, what, do you get a medal? Get a medal, yeah. Medal and another can of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> no rum at the end, though. No rum at the end, no. We drank all the rum. Yeah. <laughs> was it cold, the can of Coke at the end? Yes, it was, yeah. Okay. yeah. Chilled chill drink was quite special, actually. Oh, God, I yeah. can imagine. That'd be a dream. Amazing. So what I'm taking from this is look up. Look up. That's yeah. going into the toolkit. I really like that, actually. Yeah. And it's not just one for applying to extraordinariness. No, no, uh, yeah, anything. into life. Yeah. Run if you can. Walk if you Walk need if to. Walk if you need to. Crawl. Crawl. I read that somewhere. Someone else had written that on a blog. Crawl if you must. To be honest, I end up dropping that bit in the race because I thought I'm not going to crawl. But, but run if you. I think I'm going to apply that to most nights out now. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, but you should do it, and everyone should do it. Um, Just begin. Just enter. Oh John. Yeah. You should go <laughs> That's do it. pressure. <laughs> I need you to tell me that I can, so I can believe that I can. I'm not sure, but perhaps one day. That's it for season one of Extraordinariness. We're already working on season two, so if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss us when we come back. If you know any ordinary people who have extraordinary stories to tell, get in touch with us through our website, extraordinariness.co.uk. The show was produced and hosted by Joanne Spence and myself, John Hartman. 
with music by Coma Media from pixabay.com. And a big thank you to all of our guests this season, as the show wouldn't exist without them.